every uh, project that we have. We have retros every sprint. So look at what we can do better, what didn't work and who we need to collaborate with more effectively to get better outcomes next time. And then after every project closeout, we do a massive post-implementation review so that we really get into the details of, okay, why did this stakeholder not like this? What was the data showing us here? And really kind of uncovering it because I think the challenge with smart cities a lot of the time because there is so much change and excitement and new things we can just jump from one pilot to the next without actually thinking about what are those foundational things that we need to stop have a breathe have a moment see what we can do to improve it for next time and see more like building blocks rather than bespoke pilots that solve a unique problem hi hi smart community friends in this episode of the smart community podcast we are so excited to bring you our very first podcast panel which was recorded live at the beginning of June in 2022. We were joined by Laura Baker from the city of Casey in Victoria, and who is also the president of the Australian Smart Communities Association. We had Nathaniel Mason from city of Tea Tree Gully in South Australia, James Pete from Moreton Bay Regional Council in Queensland, and we also had Rory Brown from the Smart Places team in the Cities and Active Transport Division in New South Wales. We proudly partnered with the Australian Smart Communities Association, or ASCA for short, to bring you this very special episode as we discuss how to embed smart communities. In this episode, we begin with an acknowledgement of country and our panellists tell us about their backgrounds. Laura also tells us a bit about what ASCA does, as well as the Smart Casey Launchpad. We then hear from James and he tells us about the asset scanning and smart park projects Morton Bay Council have been running. Rory then tells us a bit about the smart places strategy and some of the initiatives involved. And then we hear about Casey's digital equity living lab that has been introduced before Nathaniel tells us about his connected cities project with the city of Tea Tree Gully and how they've been working on this. Rory then discusses some interesting projects, including their smart planning portal, the 3D modelling work they have done with some of the Western Sydney councils, and the smart irrigation work they have been managing at the Sydney Olympic Park. We finish our chat discussing the key elements to embedding smart communities in our organisations. This is a really exciting episode, a little bit longer than normal, and we really hope you get a lot out of it. As always, we hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Welcome to the smart community, smart regions, smart towns, and smart cities. It's where we live, work, and play with smart communities. The future starts today. Big data, smart mobility, emerging trends galore. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for. Hi, everyone. We're going to get started very soon. Well, people are still streaming in, but we are going to get started. We do have two hours locked out for this, but we'll probably take about an hour and a half. But I just wanted to make sure we had enough time to really dig into the details because we know we've talked a lot about what smart communities are, what they mean, but I'm really keen to get our panelists today to really share the learnings that they've had and how they've really embedded smart community, this approach within their organisations. Very lucky to have some brilliant people from local and state government with us today. 
So we are recording this as a podcast and we've got, um, and welcome to our live audience as well. Uh, feel free to jump into the chat and ask any questions that you have or even just say hello. But we'll just start with an acknowledgement of country. So where I am, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which I'm meeting you all today. As we're online learning and sharing stories, we are meeting on the lands of many First Nations people. So where I am, I acknowledge the Gaiba and Jarawa people, and I ask you to do the same wherever you are located. And I'd like to pay my respects to elders past and present. So if you want to drop in where you are on country in the chat, that would be awesome. And please just acknowledge wherever you are today. So welcome everyone. Great to see you all here again. I see some more people jumping in on the live audience. Feel free to jump in and let us know where you are. Hi, Ellen. Great. Great to see lots of people jumping in and letting us know what country they're on and also where you are today, where you're listening in from. We might just get started because why why wait and listen more to what I have to say? Because we'll hear a lot of that throughout this um, session as well, which is why we needed two hours because four panelists plus Zoe equals you know a good time, but also lots of chats, lots of discussion. So we might just jump in. This is a live recording of the Smart Community Podcast. We are going to be talking all about embedding smart communities into the organisations where we live, work and play. Now, I was really keen to get this podcast, I guess, on the agenda because we want to be able to talk about moving beyond the hype and moving into actually embedding this. And what does it actually mean? Because we know that the conversation has matured, things have shifted and changed. We're not only talking about what technology can we buy to make our communities better, um, but actually how do we embed this approach? Because we know that it's not just about technology and data and making better decisions. It's also about a mindset shift and an approach and a change. And the only way we can do that is embed it across the whole organization. All the smart stuff isn't just in one box anymore. It's actually going to be embedded throughout. And I invited our panel members today because I know they are doing different things across all of their organizations and I'm really keen for them to share with us those learnings. So if you've got any questions throughout, please pop those into the chat and we will ask those at the end. But yeah, let's get into it. Now, I'll introduce Laura. Well, I'll get Laura to introduce herself first. Now, this uh, podcast is being brought to you in partnership with the Australian Smart Communities Association, which again, I'm very excited about. So I might just hand straight over to Laura to introduce herself and also give us a little bit of information about ASCA. Thanks, Zoe. It's awesome to be here. Um, and I firstly want to acknowledge uh, the traditional owners of the lands that I'm on today, which is Tanurong people, um, and pay my respects to their elders past, uh, present and emerging and any First Nations people who are on the call today. So um, my name is Laura Baker. I am the president of the Australian Smart Communities Association, and I'm really delighted to have a lot of um, board member alumni on this call today and also uh, to, to share a little bit about what we do. So ASCA uh, is a peak body um, that sort of advocates for the government, in, uh, government interests in the application of technology, data and innovation across all layers of government in Australia. We also collaborate quite heavily with industry, but our main focus areas is how do we push the smart community agenda forward so that people and communities are at the centre of the technology and digital age. So we do a range of things from building 
networks at a local level and connecting local LGAs together with industry, all the way through to case studies, knowledge sharing, exclusive insights, one-on-one coaching, other things like that, because we know that a smart community um, program or roadmap can often be quite isolating, in a, especially in a local government context. You're often one person trying to do a lot of different things. And we want to make sure that we can support you because uh, we know that the, the future of, of government and the future of councils in Australia um, really should be resting on, on smart city foundations and smart community foundations. So if you're keen to learn a little bit more about ASCA, feel free to reach out to any of us and we can point you in the right direction. It's a membership-based organisation and, yeah, we'd love to sort of see more members from all across Australia join and, and seek the benefits of, of what we have to offer. Excellent. So thanks, Laura. Now, I may have missed it. Did you say which council you're from? No. I was reading on the ASCA thing. Sorry. I'm also from um, the city of Casey. So I'm the head of Smart City and Innovation there. And we've been on a smart city journey uh, on and off for probably about six years now. But we've had a, a defined roadmap and strategy in place for the last sort of two and a half years since I joined. So excited to tell a little bit more about that. Excellent. Yes, I am keen to dive into that. I know you've been doing lots in the digital equity space. Uh, yeah, so we're, we're going to dive into that a bit later. Now, keeping on the theme of ASCA, we have a board member, a current board member on the panel as well. So Nathaniel Mason, I'll get you to jump in and introduce yourself. Thanks, Zoe. Uh, yeah, great to be here. I'm coming to you from Ghana country in Adelaide. It's yeah, fantastic to be part of the conversation. Thank you for, for inviting us. Me, uh, I'm going to give a credit to Moira Ware, one of the local social innovators in Adelaide for the way she structures her bios, and I'm going to use hers, which is my local, my state, and my national uh, activities. Um, locally, I work for the city of Tree Gully, uh, which is about 20 minutes northeast of Adelaide. Um, our team there is uh, the creative half of IT. We do program management. We do a bit of strategy and innovation records and FOI, so a huge range of activities, but very much kind of just working our way around the organization, trying to help solve problems. So it's a pretty good fun day today. My state activity is with the Local Government Information Technology Association in SA. So we are similar to ASCA, but we're a state-based organization. And we exist to support, advocate, and collaborate with South Australian councils. Um, so there's a really strong network there, similar to ASCA, doing all kinds of things, advocating for the network. We just released a cybersecurity strategy jump on the website and check that one out. It's free and open for every council and it's designed against the essential eight to help everyone grow their maturity. So that's our latest initiative. And at a national level, uh, working with Laura and an amazing group of people on the ASCA board and really enjoying some conversations there where we're working to, to progress at a national level. So that's the things that keep me busy in the 25 hours a day that I operate. Excellent. Thanks, Nathaniel. And James? Hi, yeah, my name is uh, James Pete, and uh, I'm the Manager of Digital Innovation and Smart Cities at Moreton Bay Regional Council. Uh, also last year, I, I spent the year uh, on the ASCA board working closely with Laura and Nathaniel on various activities we were doing there, which was, uh, which was great fun. And I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this um, area of the Moreton Bay region, uh, which who are like the Cubby Cubby, Jinnaburra and Torbal people. Just like to pay my respects to them. So I guess in terms of my position here at Moreton Bay, I work alongside our, our technology area uh, in terms of, I guess, the capabilities. A lot of the, they utilise the capabilities of our IT and technology teams. But typically, I work uh, horizontally across the organisation, basically with lots of different business units. Uh, I guess helping them understand uh, the meaning of smart cities. What does smart cities mean? How does it 
benefit them, that kind of thinking. And essentially, a lot of the work that we're doing around advocating for smart cities at Long Bay is, is just explaining that this is about uh, using data like you've never used it before to, uh, I guess, supercharge the, the things that you've you've always done. There's this data set from the public realm that, that uh, is now available to you. Uh, so we've been working at Walton Bay in the smart city space probably for um, about five or six years quite actively. And probably in terms of our history, you know, we, we, we've won a few of the, the funding, smart cities and suburbs funding originally, a few early projects doing smart parking and, and various AI projects. And since then, we've been gradually maturing and developing. One of the things that we've done over the last sort of two or three years and it's in production now is develop our uh, smart city data platform, which is really the, the place where all of this data from the public realm congregates and then can be used in lots of different ways. And uh, it's supporting a lot of our projects, both small and large. So the smart hiking project being one of them, our road defect uh, scanning system, which uses cameras and AI, cameras mounted in garbage trucks to pick up road defects. We're doing a lot of lake water quality monitoring and sort of starting to automate and uh, improve some of those projects. Probably the latest one we just launched this week is a smart park project. It's a relatively small project, but it's it's deliberately small because part of the project is around actually communicating with our local community around the, our use of data from the public realm, helping the community understand essentially what IoT is, what it means, what's the benefit to them and uh, to the, the community in general. So um, that, they're, I guess, the various actual projects that we're doing in terms of technology. A big part of my work at the moment is working alongside our corporate planning team who are effectively redoing all of our corporate strategies, um, starting sort of the end of last year and moving into this year and probably take till the end of this year to, to have all that done. So what we're trying to do is effectively create a line of sight between every smart initiative and the, the strategic initiative that it's enabling or measuring so that's i guess as we're starting to mature that's how we're trying to bed it down to be a, a real part of the business as opposed to just lots of small projects yeah thanks james and like lots of projects there and i'm keen to dive into a few of those i mean the asset management one the road scanning one is my absolute favorite project i'm biased though but i talk about it all of the time so keen to dive into that. Some people may know about that one because we've talked about it a little bit before, but I guess just seeing it progress as well has been really exciting as well. So keen to, yeah, we'll, we'll dive into that a bit more. And one of the reasons I asked you to be on the panel as well is because you were really thinking about that embedding process as well and going from pilot to trial to embedding into, you know, the whole asset management system, which is very, you know, traditional you know, has legacy systems and, uh, you know, it's a significant pain point for most councils, I would say across Australia, but across the world. So um, I think that's a great one. But then also the approach from the, the corporate side as well to be embedding that smart, smart stuff into everything that we're doing, because at the end of the day, we want to be achieving those objectives of the councils. But so we'll dive into that, but we'll go to Rory now. Rory, we've been waiting patiently. Rory Brown from State Government, tell us about your background and yeah, Smart Places agenda. Yeah, thanks, Zoe. I'm more than happy to wait patiently, really just because I love listening to the panellists that we have here and, and hearing about the excellent work that they're doing. Uh, so Rory Brown, 
I'm the acting executive director of the New South Wales Smart Places team. I'm speaking to you today from the land of the Kamarangal people of the Aurora Nation. So I'd also like to acknowledge all their custodianship uh, of the land, uh, elders and uh, past and present. I guess a little bit about uh, sort of New South Wales and, and smart places. The state government has been on this journey, I think, officially for close to two years. Back in it was back in August 2020 that we published uh, the smart New South Wales Smart Places Strategy, and uh, we outlined in that what we thought were the opportunities that sort of are transitioning to a let's say a smart state. And as James was talking about, fundamentally uh, using technology, using the data that you can generate from that smart tech from sensors uh, to help us kind of manage to run to plan. Our, our places better. And um, we kind of, our team mantra is simply uh, delivering great places and outcomes for people by supporting that consistent, seamless place-based approach to using those technology and data solutions. So I'm pretty excited about the, the, the kind of the journey. I believe that we're sort of the, the first sort of state-based government team we are by no means the first to, to look at this, of, of course, and I feel that uh, local government's been charging hard in this space and, and we always are, are watching what's happening so we can kind of get our learnings uh, from that. I will certainly speak later on about a number of the things that we've done or delivered from our from the strategy and the action plan that we've got in it. So I might leave that a little bit later. I think just as an introduction, the other thing I'd like to sort of call out is the work of the Australian Smart Communities Association. Very pleased to say that we are members uh, directly. Um, we've also had a number of the team uh, participate in at, at the board level uh, for ASCA. And uh, I hope Laura doesn't mind me saying this, but we also get significant benefit because we set up a Smart Places Advisory Council uh, for the state, uh, which is an independent, uh, essentially an independent body of, of representatives. And we've got Laura on there sort of bringing in her experience, but also bringing in, I guess, the, the kind of the, the broader knowledge that ASCA can pull together. And that's helping us shape the work that we do currently and help us in our sort of agenda and, and plans going forward. So we really do appreciate ASCA and uh, the relationship we have. We're looking forward to that uh, continuing. So that's just really a little bit about me. I'm so looking forward to this panel and uh, getting into some of these questions. As I say, I think that'll be the chance for me to share a little bit more about the work that we're doing. Um, I think the final thing I'd say is we probably do have a, you know, as this uh, representing state government, I've got a slightly different lens to this, uh, but I think that will sort of help really enrich this conversation as we move into it. Yeah, agreed. And again, one of the reasons I wanted to have that state approach or state government approach is, is it that different lens and also thinking about the different roles that we have within government agencies and what, what we can do to really bring that all together. So yeah, keen to dive into that a little bit more um, later on as well. So maybe we, let's just start and I'll start with you, Laura. What from City of Casey's perspective, um, what is your organisation's kind of strategy or approach to smart cities or smart communities? Yeah, it's, it's almost like a philosophical existential question. I had to kind of take a step back to it. So, yeah, I guess ours, our approach really kind of starts 
with the acknowledgement that the city of Casey is a fast-growing community. Our community, our environment and the technology landscape that they're operating in is constantly changing. So having really strong foundations for how we innovate, how we look at problems in new ways and how we adopt technology is more important than ever and will only continue to grow. So on that premise, uh, when I joined the City of Casey in 2020, no, it was 2019, actually. It was before the pandemic. Uh, we sort of decided that we wanted to have more of a strategic approach um, to how we looked at the smart city landscape. We knew that there was a lot of exciting things happening, but we wanted to really contextualise it to the city of Casey. So we'd done a few pilots beforehand um, and there was they were sort of exploring the technology and we got some really good insights from that. But really moving forward, the um, the strategy or the approach that we want to take is how do we unlock the uh, objectives and the goals of the organisation in new ways? Uh, and how do we also partner with our community so that they can provide feedback to us around the changes that they're seeing in the landscape? So we've, we've got a, a program called the Smart Casey Launchpad, which aims to try to distill those principles, the focus areas and the key actions. And every year we obviously have an updated action plan that sort of follows a maturity model. So year one was really about establishing those foundations. Year two is about embedding them across the organisation. And then year three and four is sort of expanding and, and scaling them up. So instead of just jumping to, to the solutions and just trying to do as many things as possible, we've tried to take quite a staged approach because we know that there's so much change happening that we need to have strong foundations so that we can respond to that change. Mm. And how's it been kind of uh, embraced by the organisation, not just, you know, the Smart Cities team? Yeah, well, when I started, the Smart Cities team was um, myself and another colleague. So uh, we've since grown and now we have the innovation portfolio as well. Um, but I think the most important thing we did at the start was just start by listening and not saying, this is a new thing, you have to get on board or get out kind of a thing. So we really, uh, we did a couple of plenary sessions and masterclasses, and it was just about building that common language, understanding what the challenges were, how people were already using data, uh, unlocking existing Smart City projects that people may not have labelled as smart cities so that they could kind of align themselves and think about, oh, okay, I'm already doing this, so I'm going to step in rather than take a step back and get too freaked out about these new buzzwords. So we spent a lot of time kind of working on that. And then with the community, we established a community reference group and other um, sort of networks with Casey Tech School and Federation Uni and others to try to build that um, those champions locally. So that's been a really great way for us to test kind of wording, thinking, implementation, getting them involved in events, um, and so that it kind of builds that sort of critical mass to then progress things as well. And I think underpinning all of that is that, you know, we start with people first and how they interface into a, a space of change and technology rather than trying to put a sensor in someone's face and say, hey, look how cool this is. So it's it's kind of um, based on that principle first. And, and I think because of that, we've seen a lot of really good momentum across the organization but also spilling out into the community and with partners as well so yeah no awesome and I know James you've been on this journey for quite a while as well and you had an initial approach and then now you're as the as everything's maturing as people are becoming aware of what's what's what and what works and you've kind of validated that this thing is is really a thing I'm keen to get your journey along and I only know because I've been kind of hanging out, hanging around the edges for a while, looking, lurking. So tell us about how that journey started and then where you're at now. 
Look, the, the journey started in, in 2015 where there was an acknowledgement amongst the executive that IT existed outside of corporate IT, not just inside the corporate, you know, here's a Dell <laughs> and some software. Uh, so, and that's when I moved into the role that I'm, I'm in today, which was to really help the organisation understand, well, what is that and how might we, I guess, leverage that? So it started with simple things like an open data policy and those sorts of things. And it, and it, and it started really, smart cities wasn't a big part of the language in those days either. It became that and it's become, in a sense, pretty much all we're doing is labelled smart cities these days, but uh, certainly wasn't back then. Similar to Laura, there was already a lot of uh, projects that were happening generating data from the public realm. And we've, over the course of time, over the last five or six years, we have been, I guess, trying to integrate all of those, even things like CCTV networks and those sorts of things, which tend to grow organically, or I certainly have here, and trying to help the owners of those those technical assets to, to bring them into the fold so that they that data can be utilised beyond just asset security and, and public safety and those sorts of things. The project that you were referring to, Zoe, the... Um, our asset scanning system. Now that that was um, a little bit of luck and timing, and you know it started really in probably well, the end of 2016, and it was a conversation between myself and my two others where we thought, well, surely garbage trucks they they touch every road every week. What can we do? And um, through various means, um, we spoke to a lot to all of the waste contractors that. Um, we also, in terms of timing, we were about to go to a new waste contract, so it gave us an opportunity to put clauses in the agreement that gave us access to the trucks, those sorts of things. But also working with yourself, Zoe, and um, introducing us to a technology provider that that was starting to work on this thing helped along the way. So I guess one of the key lessons we've learned from that particular project and what I guess the message that has been sent to this organisation and beyond is that through uh, some intelligent use of technology, and it was relatively straightforward technology, you can you can have a massive take a massive uh, difference to business as usual. In this case, to managing uh, defects on our roads. And one of the things uh, an old boss of mine used to say to me is your job is to put yourself out of a job and in a sense that's what's happened with the asset management uh the the asset scanning project i don't have much to do with it anymore it's now being handled completely by our asset management team they have an innovation team within the asset management team that just concentrating on how to use ai to manage assets so whether it be roads footpaths we're doing building roofs uh, we're doing stormwater pipes we're doing all sorts of things we're building up our internal AI capabilities as well. So we really do recognise that approach, object recognition from video and still images is a, a massive game changer for local government. And so we're, we're very much investing in and continuing to invest and expand what we're doing there. So that was a real shot in the arm for Morton Bay Regional Council in terms of recognition and acceptance that smart cities uh, isn't just shiny widgets. It really does impact the bottom line in a very positive way. Uh, so that's sort of given us license to then continue on with other things as well. 
and keen to, I guess, jump into some of those other things too, but just for people who aren't aware of the project, basically you've put dash cams on garbage trucks. I think it's throughout the whole fleet now. Is that correct? Yeah, so we have, there's 30, 28 or 30 curbside waste vehicles that have a device on the dashboard inside the truck. And those trucks, which are the general waste, not the recyclables, just the general trucks, they touch pretty much every road every week. The video footage that that device captures also anonymizes on device. So it does things like it blurs out people's faces and pedestrians that might pick up and things like that, rego numbers and those sorts of things. It sends that video footage to the cloud. In the cloud, it then uh, detects sort of somewhere between sort of 20 and 30 defect types, so potholes, cracks, line marking, signage defects, all sorts of things like that. And then that that generates data, defect data, which then is automatically inserted back into our asset management system. And our asset management system, which is Tech One, we have automatic business processes that when a defect appears against a road, it is assigned to a work team appropriate for that physical location in our region and and it's just effectively allows us to triage all that work automatically and uh, it's really uh, helped us in terms of prioritization it's helped us in terms of understanding the life of the road the defects that occur you know after disaster events and all sorts of things so it's generating i think there's i think the last time i looked at it recently there was about 80,000 road defects and you think oh how do you cope with that well they were there now we know they're there and it actually allows us to manage it a lot lot you know this is massive it's over two billion dollars worth of assets so we do need to manage it and this is really a, a, a real shot in the arm for how we do that yeah and it's also one of my favorite projects i've been doing a bit of research a bit of a research project with morton bay we'll finished um at the beginning of this year and, and thinking about how we could use that data set uh in different ways which was really exciting for me and i think one of the things I love about this project as well is that you've handed it over to accountants and engineers, right? So if it wasn't viable, it was, like, it's not the tech people now that are pushing this along. This is engineers and accountants. So it's it's making a real impact, uh, I think. And just that data set, you know, using it for maintenance, but then thinking about all the other things we can actually do with it. You know, as you said, $2 billion worth of assets you know, safety of our communities, all those type of things, it really feeds into that. If we can manage our road assets better, we can use that time, money, effort, resources on things that the community really cares about. But also we can just improve that level of service as well, because we know that that's time, money, resources is something that I've never heard a council say, yes, I've got enough of all of those things and I can't wait to, you know, most effectively use those. It's how do we get the most out of what we've got to work with. So I really, and you've you've stolen the second question about your favourite project, but I'll let you tell us about another project later. I might go to Nathaniel now. What's your approach, what's your organisation's approach to smart cities and communities? Yeah, thanks, Zoe. It's really interesting hearing these stories and kind of agreeing with lots of lots of the comments already. Um, for us, it's um, it's about community value. I mean, that's all, what councils are there for, so you know, our approach is that if it has value to the community, then you know, it's worth doing. Um, we don't have a strategy, a, a smart community or a sort of smart city strategy that stands alone. Um, for us, uh, I guess I see it kind of baked into continuous improvement. It's just kind of the way we do things. And I'm, I can't remember someone was talking before. I think you said yourself, though, it's not just technology, you know, like it's mindset, behavior, culture, systems. It's all these other things that kind of support 
improvement. And I guess I think of smart as a verb. And when you hear of something like, you know, James is just talking about a project, you go, oh, that's really smart. Like that's, that's kind of what you want the outcome to be. If someone go, you're making a tiny tweak or a little difference to someone's day. You know, and a lot of the things we we think about, we gloss over very quickly and go, oh, no, like think about environmental use cases when kind of IoT was just emerging. And I remember some discussions going, ah, oh, I will probably skip that. But we're coming back to it in a big way because it's those little things of going, oh, is it too hot to play sport at the netball court today? Or, you know, is it going to rain? Like most of us spend so much time on the Bureau of Meteorology app, just looking at the rain radar. Go, like that's a tiny little piece of data, but it's so valuable to me in the way that I plan my day. And um, so it's those little things, those little continuous improvement opportunities that um, I think for us uh, are kind of what push the smart community effort along. You know, certainly Laura, Laura talked about data governance and listening with, you know, the same exercise for us. And I, our role as a team for me at uh, Tea Tree Gully is very much just connecting the dots. You know, we do lots of talking to the team or every team across the organization on where are your challenges and what are you working on? And oh, this this team's working on upgrading some facilities, bookings, and this team's working on careless access to buildings. So let's connect the dots there and make sure that people are talking to each other because then you get these, I guess, ecosystems that add value. There's probably a learning I was going to talk about later. But, you know, you do things once and sometimes there's a high cost of entry to do it once. But if you can look at it as a system or system of systems, then you can sort of start to pull that value back and you get much better return. Yeah, so for us, it's very much, yeah, it's just an improvement mindset. It's, it's smart as a verb. And I think we need to think about, too, what the definition of that, you know, what is a smart activity or, you know, what is a smart community? Because very quickly it turns into a conversation about uh, emerging tech and blockchain and chain and shiny things, but that's not really, that's not central to it. The ways that we can, as I say, make, make someone's day easier, like online payments or self-serve, we, I guess we all go, well, that's just something you do, like everybody does that, right? But at some point, that was a really smart thing to do because it made, made it easier for someone to transact with us and get something done. So yeah, I'm always keen to come back and look at that definition of what is smart and make sure that we, there's room for those incremental changes. So you know, for us to, to be able to look for opportunities, to have permission to try, to go, yeah, yeah let's, let's try something that might make an improvement and then kind of measure the result. And that's, I think, the beginning of what we're talking about today in terms of pilots and trials and then looking for opportunities to grow when you, you can kind of iterate and measure the, the results of those efforts. Yeah, I think that's really important. Two things that really stuck out to me is people are expecting localised information now. And I think that, like, it's not good enough to say, oh, Toowoomba is going to be two degrees or it was this morning. I think it was felt like negative 1.3 according to my app. But how we actually get that information too. I know another Toowoomba person is on the line and, yes, it was very cold this morning. But I think that localised information, but not just for convenience sake as well, but the way that we plan our lives and then the way we plan in emergencies and disasters and, and all those type of things as well, and the way we plan our day that can make the network run more effectively, you know, throughout the community, just say we might choose to catch a bus, you know, outside of peak hour or whatever the case is, or if we have to drive our vehicle, how can we make the most efficient use of, of our time? Or maybe we can ride our bike because we know it's not going to hail on us or, or whatever the case is. But I also think from a community perspective, being able to plan better with that more localised data is really important too. And you were talking about that in those incremental changes like, oh, well, you know, isn't that just business as usual? But as you said, it wasn't always business as usual. And for some councils, it still is not. And it really, I think we need to call those smart projects because it is a smarter way of doing things. Yes, it may, may be, you know, mile inverted commas miles behind where people think you should be but you just need to start wherever you are right and i think the other thing is 
those things might be happening and we might have payments or we might have an app or whatever, but are we actually using the data most effectively behind the scenes to make better decisions or is it just something that we had to do, but actually we don't have the permissions or the empower, you know, the empowerment of people to actually behind the scenes actually make better decisions with that data or the skill sets required to actually pull and shift and change and move that data around. I think that's one of my key, I guess, learnings is when you dig a bit deeper, it's like what decisions are we making or what, how are we making decisions a bit better or differently because now we have that data that can show us trends and, you know, we can know a complaint before, you know, someone doesn't have to tell us that this was a really frustrating process or whatever. It's, we can get that from the data, you know, how many times people clicked on things or did this or, or that or whatever, or, you know, maybe they complained on social media or on the website or whatever. So there's a few different things. And I think that's where now that we're getting all this, you know, we've installed technology, we've gone through these different phases, we've moved beyond that. Then what are we actually going to do with all this data behind the scenes and how are we going to make better decisions with it? I think is really key. Rory, state government perspective, what is your approach to smart communities? Yeah, look, so when I first uh, was thinking about this question, actually, it was a little bit, uh, I was almost a bit challenged with kind of going, okay, well, what, what is our, uh, you know, what would I specifically say fundamentally? But what I wanted to talk about a little bit was what we have in our strategy. And, and I guess to answer the question, kind of, you know, what is the role? Why should state government be participating in this tool? You know, if we're talking about sort of uh, smart communities, you know, you, you, you could say, well, look, look that's, that's local government. And they can sort of have that remit and, and drive forward. I think the reality, though, is that there's a key there's probably two key insights. I think number one, we ourselves have significant touch points to community customers, of course. Uh, number two, we deliver a significant amount of infrastructure. And number three, we can then obviously play a role from, I think, a, a policy, a framework setting perspective. And, and in some cases, we can potentially uh, or ideally lead by example and then help others sort of follow and, and, and develop that capability. And I think a number of those insights then flow through to the development of the Smart Place strategy and the actions that were in there. And, and when we thought about sort of what is it that we want to, you know, how can we help drive this out? How can we help deliver uh, a consistent and seamless approach? We said, okay, well, look, let's make sure that we have our a set of actions that looks at the foundations so that we have the appropriate policies in place where, you know, do we have uh, the standards? Can we, you know, if they're not there, what do we need to actually develop? Do we have clarity and understanding about governance models and so forth? And we then did a number of bits of work there. We developed an IoT strategy. There was a smart infrastructure strategy. We also looked at uh, things like data policies and so forth. And as well as the Smart Place Custom Charter, which I'll, I'll get on to in, uh, in shortly. We also thought about enablers, or as I like to actually call it, catalysts, because, you know, if you have that framework in place, you that doesn't mean that action or initiatives and, and projects actually move forward. You, you need to, I think, have a catalyzing mechanism. And that, you know, for us was thinking through the like different partnership models. I'd probably call it, I think there's still a... a number of interesting challenges around procurement, especially when you think about procurement linked to innovation, plus uh, procurement models in an in industry that 
reality is still quite small. And uh, I think there's a limited number of suppliers for certain things. So, you know, like how do you actually sort of trial or pilot something and it's successful to kind of scale it up within a traditional procurement performance example. And then there was a piece around funding and financing and that led to us setting up our Smart Place Acceleration Program, which is a $45 million uh, not grant program, but fund for state government to actually work with local government to start seeding our uh, initiatives. And then on top of that, there was a, a place-based element and we identified a number of key areas where we wanted to work with the, the place managers and the community to actually develop our essentially strategic action plans to sort of say, okay, well, if we have a vision of we wanted to make this area smart, what are the steps that we wanted to take? And, and we've done quite a significant work, bit of work in, in Western Sydney and, and, and also central, uh, central Sydney. And, and we've done that work and been successful in it because we've been working with local government hand in hand. So state government and local government together rather than kind of separately. And that's probably another big thing for me about, you know, sort of our approach, like how our approach to, to sort of smart and smart communities it, collaboration has to be a really big and important element. Um, I mentioned the Smart Place Customer Charter, and, and I think that that was, uh, I want to talk about that because that was sort of almost the my sort of first answer to this question, what's your organization's approach? And that's people community first, right? We, I think we all know a lot of examples overseas, but potentially also kind of locally as well, where it's maybe been a technology-first approach or a vendor-first approach. And ultimately, successful smart places and successful smart communities are going to come about when it's kind of uh, developed with the community, not sort of for the community. It's clearly focused on actual sort of problems or opportunities, and everyone's kind of bought in on that journey, right? I don't think... um, uh, uh, anyone particularly enjoys if like a piece of tech or a camera is suddenly you know placed on a pole near where they live and there's no kind of view of so why is it there what is it doing what data is it capturing what you know is my privacy being respected and so on and so forth and so in that one of the key foundation pieces we actually did was a smart places customer charter and that had the the clear intent to have make a statement that uh, smart place should be designed designed for people and created with people placing customers at the center. And we did that through uh, a lot of community uh, engagement, a lot of engagement across government and industry and academia as well to develop that. Then we, we've got six principles looking at things around giving customers a voice and providing perfection for data, transparency, accessibility, equity. And we also call our core values on connection for country, sustainability, and resilience. Now, in and of itself, I didn't, I don't, like, I'm not going to claim that these were, you know, new things per se, but I feel that it was a really important kind of statement of intent to have this as a published document and saying, this is how we think we should proceed, you know, whether it's state government, state government, local government, or indeed local government. And we put the charter out and we're actually seeking for people to start signing up to them. And we've got uh, quite a few people that are doing that. The key thing is not signing up for the sake, but then signing up and going, this is how I can, I can actually uh, use it. So that's probably like my, my big, big thing here. And it, it keeps coming back that you know, smart places, technology is important. It's not actually the technology. People are important. 
uh, capability, which is obviously linked to people who are important, um, the capacity and so on and so forth, uh, understanding, getting the right buy-in, you know, from what uh, kind of the executives, the, the collaboration and so on. And the more that we can just ensure that, that we have that lens, because the technology will come. Like, and reality is that I think that the technology can do far more and beyond than we even really need it today. And, and I was quite, you know, listening to James and kind of in the, the journey that he's done. Like, it's just fascinating to me because I'm still having conversations with local governments in New South Wales who are, I'm going to say, they're hesitant because they're just unsure of what it means to take this journey smart. You know, they feel that their plate is already full with, you know, the standard pieces operational that, that they need to do. And, and the, you know, there's a challenge piece there. And again, that sort of comes back to the people bit. And if we start trying to sell hard on technology or, or, or so forth, and we're, we're going to continue to miss the boat. So we have this amazing, um, if I think about Australia, you have this amazing, you have some leading lights and exemplars charging ahead. You have, I think, then a group that are want, you know, wanting to say, well, we want to part us and catch up. Uh, and then you have others who, you know, we still really need to take their hand and, and bring them along on that journey. So uh, we have the role to play. Uh, organizations like ASCA have a key role to play. But that's sort of, you know, uh, I think our approach, we, we publish everything and it's great. I um, appreciate the links being dropped into the chat there uh, by Tori. So whenever we learn, we will publish that and as much content as we can, we're going to make it available and, and share it to others and, and also actually seek feedback uh, from that as well. So yeah, that's our approach. Mm, thanks. No, I love that. I, I think things you were saying there around, I guess, bringing people on the journey is really important, but knowing that people can get on the journey, if that makes sense, like, one of the reasons I started the podcast is because it shouldn't just be about, you know, us sitting here in a room or the tech people sitting in a room going, this is what I think cities need, this is what I think communities need. And that goes to people working within local and state government as well, thinking that, oh, I, oh this is too high tech. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to bother my boss anymore because we've already got so much on our plate, like you said. And the smart approach at first, maybe it might seem like it's going to be extra and it's going to be more, but it's actually just changing the way we're doing things. Not to make that sound, you know, small, because that's a big deal, right? Change management is huge. And I think that's another key bit that sometimes is missed when we just go, oh, just add this tech, you know, just add this here and we'll do this there. No, it's a full chat. And that's about the people, right? And knowing that we need to add that into our projects. It's not just something, oh, okay, well, here's the, we changed the thing. Okay, now we'll tell people how they can, you know, feed into this. No, it's actually building it with them. And and I think, and Nathaniel, you like being in continuous improvement, you probably are all about that change management piece as well and bringing the people on the journey. But then it also means like this, as we're talking about and, and listening and collaborating. And you said like, as we learn things, we will continue to share. I really like that as well, because we don't know all the answers, right? We are all learning this along the way. We're, you know, here, technology is created by humans, right? It's a result of human creativity and we will continue to create that. But change is happening whether we like it or not and change is happening whether we are involved or not. And I think from a local and state government perspective and then people serving the community, we've got to get involved because otherwise it will happen to us and we don't want that. We don't want to happen to ourselves and our communities. So I think learning and sharing and continuing that. And I think for me coming out of the pandemic as well, my brain is like, you know, I think it was two years of like, 
I don't know, hopelessness or something, right? Like uh, this heavy feeling. Whereas I'm feeling now like we're we're getting re-energized and people like uh, are jumping back up again to go, okay, what can we, how can we continue this conversation and, 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 you know, create real action as well. I know lots of stuff did still happen throughout the last two years, of course, but now I feel like we're starting to, we're meeting again, we're, um, I mean, we've always been online, but we're meeting again in person. We're able to have these conversations and make it real again, which I think is really exciting too. Now, I know people love projects, people love case studies, people love the gory details and the lessons learnt. So I want to go to some of those now. We might start with you, Laura, because I know you've got a few kind of pet projects. You've got to pick your favourite. Well, you don't have to. You can tell us about whatever you want. But I've said pick favourite. Tell us about your favourite project, one that you've already completed or one that's happening right now, your choice. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, I've got about five, but and prioritisation is difficult in this moment. But I think I want to tell a little bit about the story of, of innovation at Casey. I think that it's a really important kind of preface to a lot of the other stuff that we do in Casey. So we, we had this Smart Casey launch pattern and that's been a lot around key actions and activities that we do to kind of build those foundations. But there's a, a really core capability component to how we look at these, these problems. And I'm going to share it because that's kind of been a thread that's been spoken about across all conversations to date. But one of the big things that uh, our senior leaders didn't want was another thing. Um, and innovation can often, as we've sort of said, be seen as that, you know, extra thing that just doesn't you know, when priorities come, it's the first thing to go. And so what we decided to do was create an innovation program that uh, would guide uh, employees over six weeks through design thinking and systems thinking tools. Really, really practical. So understanding how do you write a challenge statement? How do you go out and prototype with the community before you invest, you know, $50,000, $100,000 in your said solution? And then all the way through to delivery. And basically what we wanted to do was uh, create some uh, space for innovation because everyone just gets so busy all the time that you don't have any time to just think creatively and differently. But we created these tools that then people could pick up and then apply to other projects, you know, rinse and repeat kind of thing that help to change that mindset and that culture instead of just saying, okay, a new project, let's, you know, write the project plan, just deliver it. Let's take a moment. Let's look at the problem. Let's look at some data. Let's look at interview some community members to really understand the problems first and then jump into a solution. And so by doing that, we worked with the teams to find business plan actions that they were already doing and then basically put it through this six-week program to try to accelerate that project to be community-led or community-driven and community input first so that then we could create better outcomes and effectively reduce the risk of failed projects long into the future. So that created a really important culture, I think, of innovation. We had our first cohort, I think we had five boot camp teams. The second we had 10. And this year we've we've just had eight that have gone through. And we have an incubator that sort of sits off the back of it. So teams who have decided, yes, I want to keep going with it. It wasn't quite ready for delivery. They sort of work alongside our team to make sure that it can go to through to delivery. And one of those in particular was our digital equity living lab. So we created a digital equity framework last year, and that was really in response to the need for um, digital access, affordability, and digital abilities to be highlighted during the pandemic because we knew that um, our most vulnerable community members were the ones that were most at risk of being digitally excluded. 
So we created a framework of how we work with partners, how we work with industry and how we work with our community members to make sure that everyone can capture the benefits of the digital age. And so off the back of that, we sort of really, um, the more we dug into it, the more we realised it was very complex. It's not free public Wi-Fi that's going to solve the world's issues when it comes to digital uh, equity and inclusion. So we created a living lab. And for us, I think the best part about our job is that we're delivering and building at the same time. So we have to have the strategic thinking and the theory and the frameworks and the policy, but we have to test them and iterate them because this whole space is quite new. There was no real living lab playbook where you could just, you know, go out and do, you know, the living lab. So uh, we created all of that, our approach to how we work with partners, how we understand problems and how we activate place and space as a way to drive innovation within our communities. And so we've actually just, I think about a month ago, we launched the Digital Equity Living Lab with our partners. We went through a partner process. I think we've got about five trials going and we just had a festival last weekend in Doveton, which is our most um, digitally excluded suburb where one in five households don't have any access to the internet. And then layering on top of that, there's social disadvantage, English as a second language, all of those sorts of things that make the digital world quite a bit harder. So we had over 150 community members come into Autumn Place in Doveton and they had opportunities to see what a smart bench looks like and see where they're going to be in our communities, touch them, feel them, get an understanding of how the charges work. At one point, a kid just ran out, went to his car, picked up a USB charger and came back and charged his phone and just sat on the bench and just enjoyed the moment, which was just so good to see it being used. And then we also had, you know, an older lady come in with her iPad because she wanted to get games on her iPad. So we had a local community group help her download Candy Crush Saga, which I think means her next couple of months are going to be very busy. (laughs) But um, yeah, so it was really good to sort of see it in action and sort of see how the community can respond. It's not about, you know, digital for the sake of it. It's about how we can use digital to improve their lives. And over the course of the next six months, there's going to be more and more opportunities for them to engage with us through this living lab model and this framework that helps us to put innovation into action, embed it as part of how we deliver services, as how we deliver projects um, in partnership with our community. Yeah, awesome. I I think like the living lab approach is an interesting one. I think we see lots of examples of it around the world. I guess why was it important for you to have this living living lab? But then also will it shift and change over time based on what the community is asking for? What's your kind of approach to that? Yeah, so we wanted for us a living lab is effectively three things so you need a problem you need a place and you need people and we have created an innovation process that underpins that so that you can test and trial new technologies and new solutions so that the community are really at the center of any advances that we make in this smart city and smart community space and i think that's why we chose a living lab model because it creates a repeatable framework that we can input a different problem input different people and input a different place but also have a consistent methodology that allows us to iterate and work with the community over a time period so the next one that's coming up is around the circular economy the challenge statements and the problem is completely different the people are completely different but the way that we partner with the community and the way that we approach problems through the innovation methodology is consistent. So I think that's what we, you know, our vision is to have a network of activated spaces across the city of Casey where community members are empowered to give feedback, test and trial new concepts and make the place their own as well. Yeah, no, cool, love that. Now, Nathaniel, I'm keen to hear about your favourite project, whether that's 
within your council or one across the state or local, state or national, your choice? Each of the tiers. Yeah, there's lots of good stuff happening, Zoe. Um, it's always good to share. I'm kind of, I've been heartened in hearing Laura talk about Living Labs. We, we had a bit of a play with Living Labs in the last couple of years. We, I think, hadn't quite squared away the, the place concept, which was the P that we were missing, but I still really like the framework and, and that methodology of going about things. So, yeah, we're, we're going to keep working on that. We've got some great initiatives happening in our youth space some economic development creating make a make a market for local that's been really successful from an economic development perspective and we had a very much a youth focus on uh, what we were thinking about in terms of living labs too of uh, how do we engage that demographic who aren't as focused on rates or rubbish but are still doing amazing things and there's lots of cool things happening again that's the hyper local piece right you want to know what's happening in the backyard and how do we facilitate it we're doing all this work to make data available and facilities available you know we want to kind of make sure that um, people know about it and they come and we have that that loop so yeah i've enjoyed uh, listening to, to laura's story and there definitely hasn't been a, a playbook i felt like it was a new thing when we were trying it so it's nice to hear our peers uh who are working in that space there's been some interesting stuff i guess we're happy to talk at a, a south australian level more than just ourselves but there was an interesting project a couple of years ago uh connected cities which was a number of councils who actually managed to collaborate on a project put out some environment environmental monitoring and then share the data. Um, and it's been an interesting kind of demonstration because sometimes it's hard to do and it's, I, I really enjoy seeing those collaboration exercises because sometimes it's like, well, it just makes it harder, you know, we've got to get through their policies as well as ours. So it was really interesting to kind of watch it. And we're working out now how do we sustain it and that's one of the initiatives that we're talking about at a state level is how do we sort of make data sharing easier, have a place where we can start popping stuff. One of our, our neighbouring councils was talking about it and going, you know, there's two parts to it. There's the, the really local stuff that's of interest to me, my park, my street, my shopping centre, you know, that, that's me. But if we go big and we go, well, if we can all start matching up some data points and we can put them somewhere, that's probably giving us an opportunity then to work with the university or research partner and go, here's, here's a big data set. And if we can get some consistency in, in what we're measuring, then there might be some more insight to get out of that. And um, we do have another a climate project running across a few councils in South Australia at the moment as well, looking at some of that big picture stuff. So we've been out of feed some of our, what we thought we were just playing with, we put some temperature sensors out and I want to pilot this. And those 10 temperature sensors are now contributing to, to an enormous climate study. So it was a really good example of what we thought was a little pilot is now able to, to add some benefit at scale. So yeah, that's a, a little one. There was the uh, Marion in South Australia, Oakland's precinct, I have to give a nod to, was a, was a cool project. Again, it was a precinct-based uh, activity. Uh, there was some development and new infrastructure going in. They took the opportunity to kind of light it up and do some monitoring and, you know, is the swing moving kind of conversations have been really interesting. It's different to the way that the guys used to put a stick on the swing and see if it moved when they came back the next time. Um, we're seeing uh, you know, actual measurements coming back on how a space is being activated. So that's a model that certainly we're looking at as well. I think that's an interesting one just to touch on that point there like I think some people go why do we need to know that information but within the council we want to know that information and we do try and find that out you know whichever means we can whether it's a stick on a swing whatever we want to know that people are using the space not like so then we can really think about our investment because like we're making decisions with data that maybe is you know has holes in it or you know is based on just circumstance or happenstance or just like uh, this is what we think it is um, but we're not really sure we think it's this but actually 
we can then back it up with real data as well, embedding the numbers in the stories. Because I think sometimes when we think about councils, like if we just think about from as a community member, we might not think about all those functions that a council actually has. So thinking about those, like, oh, why do we need that or this, that, the other? Me as a community member might not need it, that piece of data, but our council will use it to make better decisions for us. And I think we need to, we, as we've matured on this journey, we're able to answer those questions better when people ask us, why do we need that? Because I think at the beginning, we may not have been 100% sure why we need certain pieces. Whereas now I think we're having people asking better questions and we have better answers, which I think is really key. And, and then, yeah, the development and planning and all those things, we are making decisions with the data that we have available and the best of knowledge that we have at the time. But we now know that there are more sources out there, better sources, richer data sets, different data sets, things that we can bring in that can help us make better decisions, which I think is key. Yeah, I'm always interested in goat tracks. You know, when you go to a park and they've built a path, but the people actually walk that way. You know, that's the kind of, I guess, the way that I think about those opportunities to go, we've got to look where are, the, where are people actually going and how do we better kind of enable that if that's the choice that people want to make? You know, maybe we need to move the path or as a metaphor for maybe we need to kind of change something that we're doing. So, yeah, definitely. And it's like these things take time and, you know, talk about resources. We, we're using all of these things to deliver. So you don't want to build something that no one's going to use. It's, you know, I think it's not don't build it and hope they come. We want to, we want to know and then build it. So. Yeah, I think there was a there's kind of a few uh, learnings. I was interested in uh, what Roy was saying before about enablers. Um, that's, that's very much the rhetoric we've been talking about too. That we can't do everything. We ca- we don't intend to do everything. But you know, how do we set things up that mean other people can do something with it? So whether it's a sharing data or whether it's creating a place, whatever that initiative is, it's kind of creating that creating space, I guess, for someone else to do it. You know, you might when we've talked about some of the stuff that we've done, it's you know, using a free and open network so that the next person can run their business on it and they can deploy their equipment or the coffee cart that comes to the park. They want to know how many people are there and is it busy on Sundays or Saturdays and they can make their business decisions and that's a really good way to support um, economic development. And yeah, get back to what Rory was saying about customers, we all have the same customers, like whether we're local, state, federal, we have the same customer and we ourselves are all customers. So, you know, it's not as if we're coming at all of this from a completely external lens you know we're all living it and none of these things respect council or state borders you know like I'm going to cross the road into a different council area or a different state but I'm still looking for a consistency of service and we measure it against Uber and against Apple like these experiences we have with consumers that's the benchmark that we're trying to meet you know sometimes people roll their eyes and talk about governance you know I'm sure we've all seen some some choices in of our own that we go, oh, that was that was an odd choice. But like that's the expectation that we have as customers and our customers have of us. So in all of these initiatives, that you know, that's what we're aiming to do is, is to meet that expectation. Yeah, the user experience I think is important. And I think that I certainly know that those conversations are now happening and, and with that language too, or whatever you know, user experience or customer and and those type of things. So I think yeah, building that in to, you know, offering those services. Yeah, it's it's shifting, it's changing. And I think we're, again, we're still learning and still growing and still trying to, I guess, give the that best level service, whatever that looks like, within the time, money, resources that we have at our disposal, but then using those better. Which, which sometimes is easy. But sometimes it doesn't have to be building a thing either. I, I, we've talked before about the value of policy and go, what I really enjoyed recently was when we did a rates portal for customers. We, the, the thinking changed from 
no by default, like, no, you can't have a payment extension and no, we can't change your arrangements to yes, for no reason, you can have a payment extension up to this amount of time, unless there's some other preceding reason. But it's kind of just flipping the thinking and sometimes it's a word in a policy and, you know, we've mentioned policy a few times, but to go, yes, by default, we will only change in, you know, these particular circumstances. But yeah, I really like the changing the thinking of yes by default rather than no. And that's what it doesn't cost anything. Yeah, and also I think, you know, maybe, and I don't know what the trend is, but when you look at the data, for example, if it's yes by default, we go, oh, okay, cool. Okay, we'll get it paid on time. Whereas if it's no by default, oh, well, I can't pay it now. Oh, well, I'm not going to care if I can't pay it for another six months. You know, if they're saying no already and you're already in that cycle, maybe there is a, I don't know, we'll have to look at the data later, what the trend is to actually get those rates earlier rather than later if you change that one that one kind of mindset shift or that one way of thinking about it would be interesting. Anyway, report back to us on that data. Thanks, Nathaniel. Um, (laughs) James, your favourite project. Now, you have told us about our favourite project that we share. Any other favourite project that you have? Another favourite child? I'll call it the favourite because I finished it this week or finished part of it this week. So you never finish smart city projects, like I'm finding out. But um, we uh, have been putting sensors and various things like um, smart barbecues and things like that into some of our uh, parks. And whilst I guess this, you would call this a relatively, you know, standard smart city thing to do, people counters, bins, barbecues, climate, et cetera, sensing. We're probably, the intent of, of this project is probably, there's, there's three main intents. So we've been collaborating closely with our parks and, and rec uh, planning uh, team who design parks and we've been collaborating closely with our operations teams who you know mow and clean the barbecues and clean the amenities box and empty the bins and, and effectively just run the park so there's a lot of da- that data what we're doing uh, is trying to understand how those two groups of um, people within council can can use that data to improve for the parks planning people improve the design of, of that park or new parks and obviously for the operations teams just being able to operate them more efficiently and effectively now there's no nothing earth shattering about that one thing we are doing with the park or we're trying to do it's it this bit's not quite working yet but um, we're using object recognition and detection to count the participation in various park elements so you've got a sort of a kids play area you've got a bar a basketball court, you've got a stage, you've got a few other different elements, BMX track and things like that. And what we're wanting to do is be able to understand the participation rates of those different park elements. So that obviously then feeds back into the planning team to understand all the success of these different elements within the park. Pretty basic stuff, but I guess I, in the past, a lot of the intel around that kind of thing came from somebody being sent out to the park with a clipboard and sit there for a few hours or a day and count. Not particularly good when you're thinking about different seasons, different, you know, whether it's in term or out of term time, you know, holidays, public holidays, weekends, et cetera, et cetera. So having longitudinal data that describes participation, uh, for me, that's that's a big thing that IoT brings beyond what we've always done. So I've spoken about those two elements, operations and planning, but also we're using this as an opportunity to connect with the community and so that link that Tori shared earlier smart initiatives link we launched that that web page today and yesterday actually and 
essentially what we're interested in doing is engaging with the community and saying, look, we're putting devices in the park. We are collecting data from the park and these are the reasons we're doing it. What do you think? We're being very, uh, in. there's a lot of, we're, we're quite intentional about this because there's also, uh, there can be a lot of, you know, if we're silent, there can be a lot of assumptions made about, oh, this is just Big Brother and you're watching us and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and that's fair. If we're silent, then people will fill those gaps with, with you know, all sorts of assumptions. So whilst if you read that web page, it goes on for a long time. My wife told me it was pretty boring, but I'm, I'm holding to it <laughs> because I'm interested in, I guess I'm, I'm not, I don't want to dumb it down. I actually want to actually explain exactly what we're doing while doing it. There's a dashboard on that website that, that actually displays the live, the live data and you can slice and dice it and, and select different um, times of the day or times of the week or the month of the season and, and start to see the differences in, in the data. But even right down to the actual payloads that come in from the devices are described, they're hidden. You've got to click a button to say, I want to see more about this because there's even more. And if you click that, you'll actually see the data payloads described. And so what we're, we're wanting to do is be quite intentional with this to open up a conversation with the community about, well, this is what smart cities is. This is what IoT means, you know. And, I mean, they, these kinds of terms like Internet of Things or IoT, smart cities, you know, we're all familiar with them in this group. But the general public, maybe not so much. And so I'm interested in introducing some of these, this terminology, but explaining the benefit, why we're doing it what it is and why we're doing it so that project has been you know we've, so we've published the, the website and uh, we've still got a bit more to do along the way uh, but uh, certainly that's where we're at with that project at the moment now i remember zoe you were saying did suggesting that some lessons learned did you want me to wait till the next round of questions or do you want me to go through that now no let's let's do it lessons learned please turns out that smart city projects, and we talk about agile, take it ages. I don't know about you guys, but they take ages. Um, you, you're dealing with the public. Yeah, what's some of the key barriers? Well, you're dealing with lots of different stakeholders internally and you're wanting everyone on board, so that takes time. You know, just booking a meeting takes three weeks. You want, you need to deal with building contractors. You need to deal with on-site safety. You need, you're dealing with procurement complexities and these things just take time and then you get it all installed and then one of the sensors breaks and now you've got another x number of weeks or months to get it replaced literally months at the moment because supplies taking ages and i'm also finding that common sense ain't so common as well and so even some of the approaches taken in terms of installation of the sensors you know we had a, a sensor that measures temperature installed on top of the metal roof you know within that far of the top of the metal roof and things like that. And it's like, all right, go back out on the site. Let's, let's move it to somewhere else. So I'm finding that it just takes a lot longer. I'm quite impatient and this is testing me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that's, I guess, one of the lessons learned is that these things do take time and we just need to persevere because we do get there in the end, but it takes a long time. And then I think even to see that return on investment or, or even just like some results takes time as well, right? Because you could say, oh, yes, this is working amazingly for a week and then all of a sudden something changes and you go, oh, I wonder why wonder why that happened. But actually that might be a long-term trend based on 
I guess what you were talking about, um, you know, the season, what's events are happening around the place and that type of thing. And then weaving that all in. The other thing that I think takes a long time too is, or a lot of brain power is thinking like across. So, so we're talking about a council or whatever, what benefits could be across council or what data we could pull in or what, you know, and then so you're thinking once someone has to be thinking about that full time kind of thing. Oh, what else could we pull in? Then someone full time, hopefully different person, but probably the same person then full time has to go and book all those. How do we get that data? Because we know that it's potentially in a whole bunch of different systems, that type of thing as well. So I think, yeah, there's still a lot of, a lot of journey to be had. I think people sometimes might think, oh, well, we've already got that. We've done this. Um, so what else is there to do? But there's so many other things that just to make it again, move beyond that pilot, right? You can like have a little wedge here, but then actually going, well, how does this fundamental, how can this fundamentally change the way that we think about customer or that we serve the customer or the community in a different way? And I think governance is so important because for me, the way that we embed smart communities is actually for you know a smart community governance approach where you do have that customer in the center because that's, we can say that, but that's very different to how we operate now, right? If I'm a customer, I have to kind of know where I need to go to pay my, you know, by this rate or to get information about that or that, you know, whereas if we are thinking about the customer, I should be able to go to one place, you know, get my thing. And then somehow the parts around, you know, maneuver around me as the customer, which again is, you know, very different. I don't know if we'll ever get to that kind of utopian view of where I just think about something and then I'm able to access it from a government perspective. You know, I'm even thinking not just council, but like across government. So I, I, as you know, if I need a transport option, it's a state government thing or, or whatever the case is. So I think there's so many different things. Um, and there's so, and I think we started with the, you know, the sexy, shiny, widgety stuff. We, you know, got some traction in some of the things that were actually worthwhile when we actually used it to be more effective or efficient. But then there's going to be this whole kind of tranche of, of smart projects that aren't as sexy and we need people on board with those skill sets to be able to then push them across. And I think sharing lessons is one of those key elements of that too. So let's, let we, I'm keen to go to you, Rory, because I know you've been working with a whole bunch of different, like obviously you've got your own kind of projects with the strategy and everything internally within your department but then you must come across a lot of different projects happening and and lessons learned being talked about um, around the place as well yeah i do and and actually as if i was uh not on this panel and listening in i would be asking james the following question on his last one which was by the way i love the example i think it's one of the great things right you know doing data to get better usage of an asset and then using that to improve future planning and investment outcomes. The thing that I was actually interested in, maybe you can, you can pick up on this later, is when you did that, right, there's a cost to put the sensors in, right? So let, let's say I'm developing a park and I'm going to put in the equipment, then I'll have costed for that typically the planning process. But then someone says, oh, put some sensors in. And they're like, well, the project manager says, why should I do that? And well, we'll get some data, but how is that going to help me in delivering my project. And you, you're sort of going, well, it might not help you in the delivery of the project, but it's going to help in, say, if you're publishing this data to so community, you'd be like, well, 
Like I was, let's say I was planning a party and I thought I wanted to use the barbecues, but I checked the app and it kind of said that they're full, then I can change plans. Um, so that's great for the community. Plus it's going to be great for concerts. We'll get to learn about how we, you know, make plans investments later. And so there's this interesting friction I find sometimes, especially with smart in that the cost to do something is in a different place to where the benefit is going to be realized. I'd be keen if you could touch on sort of if that was the case and if it was how you rationalized it, it, it through. But maybe, um, so I'm keen to just call out sort of a few projects. So you're right, like we see quite a lot. We have the uh, our acceleration program. I think we've funded 20 initiatives to date and the money's gone out the door a lot quicker than I actually, well, we, we thought that it would. We thought we'd be sort of, we'll take a bit more time, but there's such, such appetite. And we've been able to fund a range of kind of really interesting things and, and the variety of things. And so everything we're doing, some would just fund something around digital inclusion and, and equity. And, and Laura would potentially might have been copying your idea. So, so I apologize for that. Uh, we're, we were looking at stuff on low-cost air quality sensors. And again, it's not that we don't know what air quality sensors are, but it's like, can you actually utilize low-cost air quality sensors to get to, you know, a certain confidence level in terms of the information that community could actually find valuable and to what level of detail you go down to. So, you know, we're not doing, uh, you know, we're not sort of giving the air quality advice for a large area, but you actually potentially could get this down to the streets. We're doing a number of things in in regional areas around capability. We had some sort of smart water and smart carbs pieces, but the three I just wanted to, to quickly pick out was we're, we're doing one right now on smart planning. And I love this because it was, we had in New South Wales, you have an e-planning portal. So whenever you want to do some, you know, your, your alterations to a residential building, for instance, and you can submit your plans into this e-planning portal and all kinds of things are, are now on board. But we're basically, that was developed up to use digital tools to make the, the process more efficient. But what's actually then happened is there's a collation of a rich data set. And so then the question was, well, what are the other uses of this data set? And one of the things, there's two types of planning pathways in, in New South Wales generally, uh, one complying development and one uh, where it's kind of a yes or no, do you meet the rules or, or, or not? And then there's uh, uh, standard development applications, which were a bit more subjective. But of course, with something like a compliant development, you could take, if, if the plan is for a compliant development, then there's no reason why you can't uh, um, look at this compliant development and get immediate analytics about whether it's right or not. Now, they're currently doing that as a trial, and that's a, that will help, it's going to help the you know, people putting in the plans to make sure that they, they meet the requirements. It's, I think it can help global government in terms of just overall processing and so it sort of starts to free up resource. But it's it's an example of not planned for use of data, but creating value from the data. And I think there's going to be lots of exciting uh, uh, things to come in that where people have data. It wasn't expected that they were used this way, but, but someone's going to find value. So that was one. A second one was just on, on 3D modeling. We've been working with Camden there's a New South Wales Spatial Digital Twin. There, it was a uh, set up trial area for Western Sydney Camden's and Western Sydney and Camden and approaches and said, well, look, we think there's lots of information we want to be able to pull out because we want to create a 3D model of our place. Again, 
I'm not saying that's new, but the insight from there was that they'd done some testing and they'd find that the community really benefited and they really enjoyed having the 3D models interact with it and, and it helped with their community engagement, help them understand where our future infrastructure was going to go and so forth. And they realized they didn't need to do this there and they could work with us because we'd, we'd had this, we had a spatial digital twin. And so we connected up and then that's another example. And the final one I wanted to call out was a project happening at Sydney Olympic Park, which I'm actually, I'll be there tonight to watch State of Origin for those that are, that are interested for uh, saying go the blues. But the piece that they have a, they have an automated irrigation system for their, for their parklands, of course, but they, and part of that irrigation system is, is they understood that, you know, the, the more that they can have the environment green, the better for uh, the cooling of the environment, the better for the visitor uh, experience. But they wanted the, that uses water, and so then the question was: Well, can we take actual weather, the forecast weather? Can we start to do the analytics uh, on that, and then we can work out kind of the minimum amount of water to use to get the maximum amount of benefit? Right. So there's kind of a sustainability play in there. There's efficiencies in there. Use again using uh, existing systems, but a better way better experiences for community using the parklands because they'll, they'll be cooler in you know, the summer up to four degrees they think they can they can achieve. And they'll also start putting, putting sensors around the park to actually tell people where the coolest places are going to be. So when they're coming to the park on those hot days, you know, uh, on the know where the best case goes. So those are just three examples. Um, but what I did want to sort of call out just generally on, on kind of learnings is that because we're doing these things it's on us to make sure that we take the actual learning and development from these projects and we make it available again, right? So I think there's been a challenge and there's been a lot of initiatives happening, not just in New South Wales, but across the country, but we're not leveraging off those. And I don't think we've worked out yet how we can, you know, pick those up and, and replicate, you know, where's our really nice, you know, copy and paste function for uh, sort of uh, smart initiatives. And so with these investments that we're making, we've got pieces of work around benefit realization that we want to start getting done. We want to make sure that we're building up, you know, the appropriate case studies. We'll then uh, start publishing that. I think there's a communication that we need to do that so people are aware of what's actually happening and, and, and linked to that. And so that's a big piece of uh, what I'd actually call out as a learning thing that we need to get right. We've talked, and you know, every, everyone in the panel has been picking up on sort of the collaboration piece. The other one that I would just call out, and I think James started on this as well, there's some real practical challenges for doing smart. And what I mean by that is that, that, that we've had projects that have got stalled, not because they, the projects themselves, were, were complex, but because they were looking to install sensors and they identified sites to install the sensors, but when they went to the site owner, in this case, utility, and said, we would like to essentially zip tie our sensor to your pole, there was like sort of crickets because the utilities weren't set up to have this type of conversation. And then when they eventually found the right people to do it, they were like, well, this isn't you know, our standard business. And so it was just like something that was outside of the norm for them. And so you're having to break ground, but that was having to break ground to physically deploy this wasn't the smart city project in and of itself 
And, and I think that's one of the, the, the big things that, that we just sort of generally see. It's, it's linked to ensuring that the appropriate connectivity is there, you know, whether you need to connect up through a low power network, kind of Wi-Fi, do you have the mobile connectivity that you need and so forth. And, and there's the practical pieces there that I think we really need to solve if we do want to have smart applied at scale, right? Yes, we've talked about the community and people bit. So I think we're, we're good there, we're clear, but, but there is a practical challenge that needs to be done. But again, I think the more that we can have those established in case studies, the more that the other, when people have already broken that new ground, then we can have those available and then others can learn and they can kind of have safety and trust in then doing their own thing if this is sort of their, their, their first time. Yeah, I agree. I often talk about this, like that smart cities um, or smart community projects, at the end of the day, they're, they're projects. They're still projects They need to be managed well. They need, you know, somebody to do the time, budget, resources, but then also unlocking that, that connectivity, all those stakeholders. At the end of the day, they need somebody to really drive them. And I think in this space, there's lots of enthusiastic people. We need that. We need energy, but we also need the technical capabilities. There's lots of things that we need, but we do need people to drive projects and want to deliver things at the end of the day as well, because it's, and some of that stuff is not very fun and not very sexy either. It's just driving projects. And, and I think touching on what you're asking, James, and actually that was going to be another question. Does any of the panelists have any questions for any of the other panelists? Because I think we could have some great questions and answers there. We are kind of, you know, running out of time, but like seeing that cost, like you said, that asking the project manager, Hey, can I put another sensor in because it'll really benefit me? That cost benefit realization again it's not realized with that cost of that project the benefit is is somewhere else and i think that may happen a lot within these projects as well which is why i think embedding that approach across is so important because then we can ask those questions and they're not the first time similarly to the the utilities if we're continuing to ask these questions and say hey can we do this it's you know people become aware then it's not the first time people are hearing about it then we're more likely to you know someone's already broken the ground then we can kind of get through it and I think um probably everybody on the panel but um James I just know your story a bit like you had to really show okay this is what we could do with this particular thing and that kind of then got leadership on board to then say okay and obviously there's a you know the people moving around and shifting and changing as well but then actually being able to then break through because it wasn't the first time they'd heard about this smart thing because they go oh yeah James has already talked about that oh yeah that we did this thing with the garbage trucks or whatever okay this is just an extension yeah, and we, um, I work closely with the, the business uh, leaders of these different parts of council. So our manager of, of parks and, and recreation planning, I've been working with him quite closely on, on this smart park project and a few other park projects as well. And he's completely convinced of the value. And uh, because the, those responsible for delivering projects, they're doing that for, for the business leader. Uh, he's specifying what he what he wants and he's getting the budget. So it, it is about through demonstration. So obviously a low-cost pilot is relatively easy to do, to, to pay for, and that's the great thing with IoT in general. With, uh, certainly a pilot is is quite literally a low-cost pilot, and uh, but, but, but you use it to demonstrate value and then it sort of rolls on from there. So I don't think I've had a huge amount of pushback. Occasionally I have pushback simply because it's only somebody realized halfway through construction that they need to make it smart 
and that's when things get a little bit sticky. <laughs> but um, and, and most of the time, the answer is no. <laughs> uh, but so we, we just need to make sure that we're on the front foot so that during project inception, and uh, it, these things are um, part of it there. Yeah, no, thanks for that. And I, I think it is really, it goes back to that embedding piece as well. And I know um, some of the other councils in the early stages were looking at, you know, when they put a project together, adding in, not necessarily a tick box, but adding in a line about, um, you know, have you considered digital or data or, or whatever, or how would you, or, or whatever the case is. And, and I think even just that initial awareness is important. And then it gives people also the, uh, I guess, empowers them or, you know, allows them to ask the question, hey, this thing is written here. Do I have to do anything about it? Um, because we know that there's whole range of skill sets, a whole range of different people embedding these projects or, you know, starting these projects, um, different levels of accountability and authority and responsibility for these things. We are nearly at time because um, I did promise we'd wrap up a bit early. Well, not the two hours, but if anyone's got any questions from the audience, please feel free to drop those in now. But I think to, and, and, and while that's happening, we'll, we'll talk about, I guess, Oh, there's a few different things. I'm really keen to talk about like pitfalls to avoid, but actually we might flip it in a, a positive way. So you can talk about, you know, what to avoid as well. But what are some of those important steps or elements to consider to practically embed smart communities holistically? We might start with you, Nathaniel. Sure. Thanks, Zoe. Yeah. I think there's obviously lots. I'm interested in James's impatience because I would say time is one of them. You know, it's. I, I was thinking when we, we were talking before about there's a TED talk about how to start a movement and it's not about the leader, it's about the first follower. So for us in this space, sometimes if we're doing something new and different, you have to try it, you have to sort of show people and go, mm, here's the thing, and then you have to wait for them to catch up. I mean, I guess that's a learning concept in general, right? Isn't that when you're doing a transfer of knowledge? But there needs to be some transfer and some osmosis and some time that elapses. And I've been really heartened by that with some of the organizations that I'm working with and teams that I'm working with that, you know, we've kind of done some stuff. We've shown some benefit. We've had a bit of a, I guess, a license to experiment, which is really, really fortunate. But now it's people are coming to us going, oh, hey, I'm interested in this thing. And what should I think about when I'm building this park or I'm doing this infrastructure? And we're tapping on shoulders and going, hey, if you're going to dig up the road, let's put some conduit in so we can use it later. You know, these conversations are kind of happening. So I, I think it's hard if you are trying to do something new and different. It is. Um, but once you kind of get some people on board and the common language someone mentioned before, you know, then you have a bit more of that organic growth. So, yeah, I think you have to be ready for the, for the time. You have to have lots of conversations, really supportive of the conversations today. And Rory's talking about share as we learn and, you know, wherever we can put these trails of breadcrumbs to help the next person find their way and navigate, it's good because it's, it benefits everyone. So, yeah, time and talking often. Yeah, but you do have to try and you do have to build for purpose. I think we're talking about that all internally at the moment, whether it's projects, whether it's privacy, whether it's data, like it needs to be driven by purpose. And we all are kind of understanding of the reason and we'll find scale that way. So sorry, that was that was probably, it's not something you can take away and do today, unfortunately, but it's there. And, and sometimes 1%, what, look for 1%. Like we're talking about, uh, we're having a sustainability conversation today. And when we're talking about the amount of utility resources for an organization to save 1% of your water, your gas, your electricity is significant. So there's a question in there about ROI. You know, often you can find just those little benefits and, and they, they would pay for itself and then you can grow from there. 
Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, um, even like adding on to the, yeah, there's a question in the chat here around, like, how do we prioritise smart community projects? And I think it is, again, embedding the approach across so then we can continue to ask those questions so people are coming to you to say, oh, how can we do this differently? How could we, I saw that that team used data to make this decision. I wonder how we could do that. And then getting people to actually ask those things. But then from a practical level, actually setting the baseline, talking to some you know, agencies, it's like, how much do you spend on X, Y, Z? Okay, the accounts people might know that, but a day to day, you know, somebody who's making these decisions about whether we can improve things might not know that information. So how do we know if we are actually going to improve it or not? Or what type of numbers are we talking about here? Because like you said, 1% on $2 million is quite a lot of money, or $2 billion is quite a lot of money as well. Even 0.1% on some of these numbers that are in budgets of, of councils and local governments is massive. And so I think asking those questions and, and, and that embedding approach then helps us to be able to prioritise those projects because we are seeking a benefit. We're not just doing it for, for fun at the end of the day, although sometimes lots of fun is had, of course, and the fun is important. But I think, yeah, that's a key point. And I think that's what you're talking about too, Nathaniel, is, is bringing that across the organisation too. In, in, and again, these are, it's not like you, know, you were talking about common sense earlier. Some of it may seem like common sense, but I think sometimes when we get stuck in this is how we work, it doesn't necessarily, it's not, you know, it doesn't happen um, day to day and we continue to do that just because that's the way we've always done it. Unintentionally, of course, but then once you lift the lid and shift things around, uh, you can kind of, create new ways of doing things and sometimes I think it takes you know someone to come in and shake it up a little bit as well you know young people coming into organizations or people from different I guess areas or from the private sector or or vice versa people shifting in and out and I think we're going to see more and more of that as we know uh, moving forward so I think we have to be ready for that too like asking those questions so that'll be interesting anyway bit of side note Laura how about you what do you think the most important steps or elements are to consider I think the first for us would be around kind of understanding, like I was putting myself in the shoes of someone I might be telling who's just about to start a new function. Understanding planning cycles is probably the most important thing I would flag because I think James said it before, someone that like, you know, if it's too late, if it's come down too late in the planning process, whether it's with developers or with corporate planning itself, good luck getting cashola and all of the things that you need to kind of get that happening. So make sure you're sort of in rhythm with, you know, whether it's uh, for Casey, you know, a new precinct planning, uh, precinct structure plan, or those sorts of things, getting with those sort of early stage planning processes so that you can have those conversations about embedding it. Uh, I think another thing is around like building community in inside your council to promote behavior change. I think one of the things that We've spoken a lot about projects, but for me, a project doesn't end when technology is rolled out on the ground. It ends when it's cycled through into BAU and people are using that data on a regular basis. And that can be quite a confronting shift. So we've got like a sort of monthly community of of practice for our innovation champions. So everyone who's sort of gone through the innovation program, off the back of that, we sort of have a, all right, let's have a debrief. What progress have you made? It starts to build a bit of that accountability, but also makes people feel not alone in driving the change. So I think that kind of building that community with a focus on behavior change is really important, making people feel like they can, you know, look at a, a, a big data set and actually make meaning out of it. And if they can't, they've got a whole community that can help them kind of build that as well. 
And then the third thing I'd probably think about is being that connector, get out there and, you know, as I think James said as well, we sort of sit horizontally. We're not in the technology department. We're not in, you know, the eco department. We really sit in customer and business transformation. So it means that we sort of see across the organisation and I think it's really important to be able to, you know, break down those silos and look for ways that maybe the council haven't thought about um, collaborating before as well. So they kind of be the the three things that I would definitely recommend. And that's come from a lot of pitfalls and a lot of um, projects that have landed very flat and we've learned from them. And, you know, every uh, project that we have, we have retros every sprint. So look at what we can do better, what didn't work and who we need to collaborate with more effectively to get better outcomes next time. And then after every project closeout, we do a massive post-implementation review so that we really get into the details of, okay, why did this stakeholder not like this? What was the data showing us here? And really kind of uncovering it. Because I think the challenge with smart cities a lot of the time, because there is so much change and excitement and new things, we can just jump from one pilot to the next without actually thinking about what are those foundational things that we need to stop, have a breathe, have a moment see what we can do to improve it for next time and see more like building blocks rather than bespoke pilots that solve a unique problem. Yes, here, here. I love that. And, you know, we talked about projects before and that we have to actually implement them, but you touched on a really important point. It's a different way of implementing projects. It's not the traditional waterfall approach. Some parts are, if you're building infrastructure, of course, like you can't, you know, half install a sensor or something like that. But at the end of the day, you want to be able to iterate because we don't necessarily know exactly what that end product or not product necessarily. But, you know, when we talk about a smart park, again, we're creating that for Morton Bay. We're going to create that for City of Case. We're going to create that for whatever based on outcomes. And I think that is also something that shifts and change. You don't necessarily need to you know follow the exact methodology because I found particularly what I call like Wagile, which is like the G version is waterfall agile so it's a bit of both combination the m version is wanker agile because you just pretend like you know what you're doing but it's like small small a agile right so it's shifting and changing and but radical level of engagement that is required on these projects is insane but it's so necessary and once you get that once we bring people on the journey both internally and you know the community and externally then we can really you know shift and change and move those things forward but it's a real shock to the system if you're not work, not used to working in this kind of uncertain environment too. So I think that's another key point that it's, and I really like what you were talking about too, Laura, earlier around bringing, you know, changing people's, the innovation framework that you were talking about earlier, you, you've really gone, oh, well, what do people need to be able to help us to implement these as well? Not just, oh, they need to know that a sensor is this, that, the other, but actually it shifts their thinking and, and gives them the tools and the resources to be able to do it. So I think that's really key. James, what are some of those key important elements? And we haven't really talked, I mean, you did mention your corporate strategy and how now you're doing a digital action plan, but can you, I guess within that, you've kind of embedded it throughout rather than having your own strategy, like you often talked about not having that strategy to begin with, but now it's kind of filtering out through everything. Is that a key element you think to embed holistically? I think for us it is simply because I'm not going to get budget to do anything unless there's a specific line of sight between that action and what the council has said they want to do, i.e. they've endorsed a strategy to deliver certain outcomes. 
And so a particular smart city project or digital project will either help that strategic initiative in terms of one example that we're looking at at the moment, literally it's in idea phase at the moment, but certainly there's a desire to assist those who are building houses in our region to uh, site their house more effectively in terms of understanding the prevailing breezes and the local climate to site and design their house more appropriately to take advantage of that so that the house is cheaper to run, it is more climate responsive, et cetera, et cetera. Well, how do you do that if there's only one bomb temperature gauge in our region? So a smart city project is actually effectively rolling out a weather grid or a measurement grid across our region using low-cost IoT sensors and, and actually then helping the home builder understand in their particular area the prevailing breezes are X, Y, Z. They're like this in summer, they're like that in winter. Therefore, you know, site your house a certain way. So that's a very tangible project, but it's because we, we potentially, because the strategies aren't endorsed yet, have a, an outcome in our strategy to assist those who are building uh, houses in our region to get better environmental outcomes and sustainability outcomes. So for us, that's that's pretty much the main, the main game. There's the little smart park project that I described, it's it's very much demonstrating back to the business the advantages. But really the main game is how can we enable these strategic outcomes? How can we measure our progress towards achieving these strategic outcomes? And it's through data, these sort of digital projects that are going to assist that. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I like because also, I like two things. Well, I like many things that you said, but two in particular. I love that project because you told me about it earlier and the idea of that project because it's still an idea. But also that the whole point here is that, and like you said, benefits that council might get from that, we could think about those, but actually it's a, it's a community benefit because we're all trying to reduce our um, emissions. We're all like, we're all working towards that goal. And I think that's where we can, again, really localize. That's really localized. But if you spread that out across a region, you could really see the impacts. And then, then someone goes, oh, that's a great idea. And then, you know, you can see it filter out through everything. And then in, in 15 years time, we'll be, People will be talking about, oh, why are we talking about that? That's business as usual. And we'll be like, well, it's, it started here first, right? Right here, right today. And I think that's really important because we are, and that's where I see smart communities being able to input and solve some of these really big, wicked problems. So it's not just in localized or, or big. And then we can apply that same thinking across to, you know, homelessness, you know, poverty, water supply, all these things. But we just need to start thinking a bit differently in how we use tech and data but also different ways of thinking to be able to do that yeah that's really important and i've just a question of time because uh, we're just having such great conversation and i i love this so we might just go might finish with you rory um what are those some of those important steps and elements to consider to practically embed smart communities holistically look so i think actually everyone's sort of really answered the points that i was going to going to bring up and sort of in the notes i down demonstration of benefit that it's a journey shared resources changes challenging is going to speak to some of those but I, th I think I think the rest of the panels kind of really cover that but I, I'd, so I'd really echo what they're saying I'd also I mean because they're, they're practitioners who are actually delivering uh, so it's all it's all excellent advice thanks rory and yes i couldn't agree more i think we've covered um we've covered a lot today and really appreciate our live audience tuning in as well this will be 
an episode on Spike Community Podcast, which I'm super excited about getting out into the world. Thank you so much um, to our panelists for coming on. Like, I really appreciate this because every time I put an episode out that's from local or state government, it just goes wild. People love hearing from you because they may not have heard from you before, but also you're doing great. We know that we, great things are happening, but we might not necessarily hear about it if we're not in the right the right circles in inverted commas, or, you know, we might not be able to, yeah, really, I guess, get those learnings from people if they're not willing to, not willing to, I just find sometimes, you know, it's hard to find that real, those stories that uh, local and state governments are telling. Um, and I'm really passionate about getting those out there as well, because we're doing some great things. And yeah, so I just want to say an absolute massive thank you to all of you for coming and sharing. And I know I could see all of you, like, you know, as each, everyone else was talking as well, learning things along the way as well. And, and I think this collaboration is really important. So keen to do more of it and see you all in person at some time in the near future as well. But yes, massive thank you. We might just finish um, any kind of last thoughts. Um, we might go around the room, um, a tweetable answer, last thoughts on embedding smart communities or I, I guess just leave us with some some words of wisdom to let our audience go off into the embedding their smart community projects throughout the organizations might start with you rory words of wisdom tweetable words of wisdom look we often talk about eating the elephant so it's one piece at a time perfect james look for specific outcomes perfect nathaniel yeah, I was going to quote James and, and make sure you you look at the outcome and and then working out what data you need to serve that. But that I think in terms of scale is is where we get everyone on board because we're all working towards the same goal. Excellent. And Laura, finally from you. I'm just going to quote James because um, I want to put this on the t-shirt because you said data like you've never used it before. <laughs> that you know continual curiosity around how data can be used and not being too scared of, of data because it's um it's your friend and it can you know open up whole worlds of possibilities amazing thank you again team and there's going to be so many quotes coming out of this and quote graphics and there's just some been some brilliant words of wisdom on uh, the panel this afternoon so thank you so much again and yeah thanks for everyone for tuning in and we look forward to talking to you all soon Thanks, See you later. Thanks, Larry. Bye. See ya. The Smart Community Podcast is brought to you by My Smart Community. If you're looking for support in podcast strategy and production, workshop design and facilitation, or communication and media advisory, get in touch. Email hello at mysmart.community or head to www.mysmart.community. Thanks so much for listening to the Smart Community Podcast. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes are available on our website, mysmart.community slash podcast. If you have any questions for us or any of our guests, you can email hello at mysmart.community. You can also find us on the socials. We are on LinkedIn and Twitter at smartcomhq. That's com with two M's. If you are enjoying the podcast, please hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And we would love for you to leave us a rating and review at wherever you listen. This really helps us reach more ears and eyes. So thank you for your support. 
as always, we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for.